Sherry Foster talks about how she originally got involved in the case. How did it come about that you were asked to be on this case? And then we'll, we'll set some context for it here in a second. Well, I first was asked because um, they needed a Spanish speaker to go to Mexico. And the case involved a hospital uh, called Anawake in Douglas County, Georgia. Um, I think they actually had a campus in Florida and they had a campus in Rockmart, which is Polk County, which is where I live. Um, but allegations had surfaced about the director, um, Lewis Petter, abusing uh, children, boys. And I went back and I was thinking about this uh, night before last, and I think he had actually been accused of it back in the 50s. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I would say this is not only going to be an awesome week, we had an awesome week last week. For those of you joining us, we reviewed the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. And it was conducted by yours truly, Morgan Wright. And I'm here literally with my partner in crime, Steve Murphy, better known as Murph. And we had a blast. Oh boy, did we? And we had Rick Massa join in us, the guy involved in the LAPD, you know, North Hollywood shootout. We had expert color commentary, baby, on LAPD tactics, and he was dying. He was rolling. He was going, <laughs> where did they get this clown from? Oh, it was. It was, uh, you know, and that was a real surprise. I didn't know you were bringing him on, and, and you know, then he didn't have any light that we could see his face. So it, it was just kind of drug it out there, a little more suspenseful, a little dra more dramatic. But, man, that brought a lot of credibility to that interview, talking about uh, Die Hard and, you know, LAPD. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it was funny, too, because some of the stuff was accurate, like the weapons they used and maybe some of the uh, Code 2s and stuff, but the whole line about, maintain your reconnoiter. <laughs> I mean, we both just, whatever the... <laughs> that came whoever that. wrote that line ought to be fired and have their royalties withdrawn. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Again, Morgan right here with Murph. We are talking today. With, this is the most interesting podcast on the internet, Muy Interesante, as we said before, so... Thanks for joining us. Before we get started into all the good stuff, just a couple things of housekeeping. Guess what we just found out? What? You can now rate us on Spotify as well as Apple. Oh. Spotify has unleashed their five-star rating system, which means it's very simple. Count to five on your hand. That's the number of stars you give. And when you do that, the world is good. The world is right. It is the Christmas season. you know. So we're hoping that you guys will find it in your hearts to help us, the poor downtrodden podcasts on the internet here, and just give us five stars. Because we are really doing our best to earn that. Wouldn't you say, Murph? Absolutely. We're trying to bring you the best content. We're bringing you guests that you will not, I'm telling you, you will not hear anywhere else. And that's the cool thing about Game of Crimes. You don't hear from Morgan and Murph. You hear from the people who actually lived what they're going to talk about. Be that a good guy or a bad guy. Or good girl or bad girl. Same thing. It's a Southern We are non-denominational. Guys, yes. guys, all inclusive. We say guys collectively, guys. So when you hear that, we say guys, everybody's guys. You're my guys. Unless you're, you know, unless you're... Um, Dominic. Dominic Bolifron, right? When you, he says guys, he really <laughs> means guys, <laughs> yeah. you know. So no, anyway, hey, but guys, follow us there, guys. See, I'm already using it there, you know. And also head on over to our website, Game of Crimes Podcast. we got a lot of stuff there. 
great stuff, Game of Crimes podcast.com, merchandise, uh, our mailing list. Whenever we have pictures for episodes like we will have for Sherry's, uh, that's coming up here. We're going to put some stuff there. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But the fun part is, this is where we had fun last night. Uh, actually, as we're recording this, it was last night. So patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where you need to be. We have now over 50 one going on 52 awesome pieces of content out there, stuff that we go from everything from case of the month where Murph and I talk about what we've worked on. We talk about random surprise, which we're getting ready to record. We're going to be talking about the shit show that is the parole system all over the United States, people getting released or not being sentenced like they ought to be. Uh, we do our monthly bonus video. We've got our narcometer. You vote for the narcometer and then we do a review. Of course, there was no narc where well, there was a narcometer uh, poll this time, but it was pretty easy. <laughs> die hard, yeah. die hard or die hard. So yeah. we, we made, made it, it easy for even you, Murph. That's exactly right. I can figure that one out. Figure that one out. But you got to really go over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got three different levels. Evil is coming. Um, Guardian of the realm and warden of the throne. All good stuff. Just go out there, figure out which level is right for you and come joining us. Join us with all the fun. Also head on over to paypal.com uh, and use our email game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support us with a pause for the cause. Now, before we get into all the good stuff, Quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We always take the story seriously, but... And you already know this. We never take ourselves seriously. We like to have some fun here. Well, we did take ourselves seriously a couple times when I said, Steve, maintain your reconnoiter. <laughs> that's the Oh, man, that's got to be one of the goofiest lines in any movie One of the ever. cheesiest lines, right? Yes. Yeah. But hey... But before we talk about even more cheesy lines and all the other good stuff, guess what time it is? What time is it? It's, it's time, time for, for Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. <laughs> I got to speed you up, man. You got moved to Florida. You have dropped your speed and half. Well, there must be a time delay here because I can see you and I'm trying to time it as to when you're talking, but uh, maybe the voice in the video aren't Maybe together. the voice in your head, yes. Hey, well, this that, one. He this, tells me what to say. That's right. Well, hey, here's what we got somebody that told me what to say. It's Bill Turpin. He came to us via the Game of Crimes fans group. Now we have our fan page, yeah. our main one, and then we have our fan group run by our mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, which we're actually we're going to get to a story of hers on our uh, uh, random surprise episode with our podcast. However, Steve, what? a Cam Denton man in Missouri reportedly attempts to sexually assault an officer during arrest. Cam Denton, Missouri. Population 4,145. Salute. Salute. Guess what happened, Steve? A 28-year-old Cam Denton man faces several charges, including a Class A felony for first-degree assault or attempted assault with serious physical injury involved after an incident on Sunday. A probable cause statement filed alleges that officers were called to the location and identified David, or David Flack, I believe, who would not comply by allowing officers inside or exiting the residence's order. Officers were able to get the half-closed flack outside where he continued to resist and had attempted to lunge his penis at one of the officers and yelled for them to grab it. Sounds like a West Virginia arrest. He was eventually restrained. I don't want to know how they restrained him. Uh, You know, whatever. I'm glad you guys did that where he's being held on no bond. Other charges include assault of a special victim, domestic assault, a misdemeanor assault, resisting arrest, and property damage. (laughs) 
apparently there wasn't enough evidence to book it in. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when, and handcuffs would have, I'm sure would have been too big. And you remember those little thumb cuffs you used to see? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. I bet that was even too big. <laughs> but you know what? Can you imagine trying to put one of those things on? <laughs> well, how do you, how do you uh, fingerprint that? <laughs> I don't well, know. We're going Just tell him quick today. Yeah, tell guy, guy, quit being a prick. Get your ass up here. Anyway, oh, oh. this one comes from someplace called Ridge. Steve, I don't know if you know this, but a woman called police. And this is the type of calls you get in small towns. Mm-hmm. A woman called police when she found an upside down turtle on her front lawn at 11 a.m. on June 1st. The officer told her, "Just what? Just turn the turtle right side up." She did, but she called back to report that the turtle had no arms, legs, or a head. The officer told her not to worry, and the turtle fled in an unknown direction before police arrived. Oh, my gosh. Duh. You don't know what state that is, do you? It's probably Kansas, I'm guessing. No, I think it's West Virginia, because she only had four teeth. (laughs) Why would it be West Virginia, then? (laughs) It could be Kentucky. Who knows? Anyway, Steve, this this one, though, the headline says it all, though. I mean, how do you write a headline with this? What? You'll get the story in a minute. So not sure exactly where this comes from. It's from the Times News, uh, the staff writer. Murderer says detective ruined his reputation. Well, that, that nasty detective, what'd he do? A convicted murderer has sued the detective who arrested him, saying the investigator ruined his good name in comments published in the Times News. Like what? Like you were convicted of killing somebody? We arrested you because you were you know, a piece of crap? Yeah, and could that be public record, maybe? Yeah, you know what? There you go. There's that thing. All of these trials are public information. You know, the, the murderer. Uh, just the headline, though. Murderer says detective ruined his reputation. Yeah, I don't think the detective had too much to do with that. I think you accomplished that on your own. And this lawsuit on this other guy was filed on, you know, college rule notebook paper. That tells you, yeah. it, you know, there wasn't a real lawyer involved. But right. guess what? What? It is now time for Uh-oh. what year was it? Let's oh, see if boy. let's see if Steve can have a better record on this than Georgia has against Alabama. But <laughs> <laughs> boom, thank you very sure, much. Sure, he's going to get you, Steve. This comes to us from the Hampshire Telegraph and Naval Chronicle, Chronicle, Portsmouth, Hampshire, England. So that's a mouthful, right? This comes to us on May 30th. You just have to figure out which year. Police raid on betting houses. Last night, a meeting attended by over 4,000 people was held in the circus Newcastle to protect or to protest against the police raid upon betting houses on the Derby Day and the arrest of 69 persons, against 64 of whom no charge was made by police. A joint telegram was read from Mr. Carolyn and Mr. John Morley, stating that the Home Secretary had been questioned on the matter and that his reply was that he had no jurisdiction over the local police. A resolution strongly condemning the proceedings of the uh, the police was passed and it was determined to forward a m- memorial to Messrs. Cowan and Morley asking for the repeal of the act which empowered such arbitrary and despotic action. Wow. So, Steve, the police engaged in despotic action by making arrests in Portsmouth, Hampshire, England on May 30th. You have to figure out what year. Was it 1893, 1883, or 1903? Why don't you put them in chronological order? I thought you were I'm messing you up, man. Just no, no, no pattern. <laughs> uh, well, you know, first of all, they're bit, they're bitching at the cops, and the cops are just doing their job. The cops don't make the law, so I just want to point that out. The second is, I'm guessing, 1903. 
1883. May 30th, 1883. <laughs> I like to keep my record perfect here. Those, just those like four Georgia times I got against right, Alabama. Just, just screwed me up getting four right out of this, you know, 30 times. Oh, I know. Well, hey, well, let's move on to something where you actually have a better track record, and that's finding some pretty good guests for us. And so oh, yeah. you found this next guest for us, and boy, is she... You guys, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to let Murph set it up, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't come away from this with your uh, tug at your heartstrings and just damn proud of somebody that in spite of everything overcame it all and went out and made a huge difference, then you, my friends, are not listening with both ears. You got to <laughs> listen with your ears and your heart on this one. Oh, it is. And it's, you know, it's a true honor and a pleasure for me to introduce uh, our interview with Sherry Foster who is a uh, former Winder, Georgia police officer, a GBI agent, and then came to DEA as a special agent. She's retired now. Uh, but, you know, like we said on other shows, just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths expire, our oaths to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And in retirement, Sherry's going to tell you what she's, gonna, she's doing. She's still working. She's still serving mankind to the best of her ability and doing a phenomenal job. But this interview, the reason it's so special I, I've known Sherry for years. I know her husband. I know all her children. I mean, I love this family. They, our families, their families are close friends. I didn't know about her background. Never had a clue. She's probably the last person I would ever have guessed would have gone what she went through. And the way she overcame it, she didn't let anybody get her down. She stood up to everybody. Um, and I'm not going to spoil our story because I want you to hear it from her. But this is just... It really is. It, I was shocked. I'm sitting here as she's telling us a story with my chin on the table, just like, oh, my gosh, I would have never thought this would be Sherry Foster's life. But just phenomenal. Uh, you're going to love her accent. You're going to. She makes me sound like I'm from New York City, so you know what's coming, right? Oh, you know but it's terrible. Well, she's a fluent Spanish speaker. I mean, fluent Spanish speaker. Two tours overseas with DEA. Her last overseas assignment, she was the boss in Cartagena, Colombia. Oh, man, just fantastic. She's got a great story. Well, the way to hear the story is to let people know and to ask you, Steve, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Absolutely. Get in, everybody. Sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Miss Sherry Foster. My friends, remember when I told you, Murph, remember when I warned everybody, we have the most interesting podcast on the internet. We're like the Dos Equis guys, the most interesting people in the world. Oh yeah, that's us. We have, we have somebody who is very interesting. How, how do you say interesting in uh, Spanish? Uh, Como se dice interesting? Interestado? Interesante. 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 And uh, hey, we haven't introduced you yet, Sherry. Just hang on, okay? <laughs> please, please, don't, don't, don't cramp our style here. Oh, that's so funny because we can see her on video. She's like, "Oh my god, I already screwed up." Uh, already screwed. Muy interesante. So this is going to be great because we had a challenge with Sherry. First of all, she's still in mourning from Georgia losing to Alabama, so we had to get over that. And, and, uh, so you, you can't can say anything yet. Later, Sherry. Yeah. Don't yeah. worry. I'll, I'll hold him while you hit him. <laughs> But but she was, as you'll find out later, she started off in state and local law enforcement, local law enforcement, went to the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. We found out we both have a good mutual friend there, Nathan Gatsif. And then she went to DEA. But the story, we, we're going to tell her story about DEA later. But when we got to talking to her, it was the story she worked 
as a GBI agent that really when Murph and I were talking said, this is the one. So Murph, this is your friend, uh, allegedly your friend. We haven't seen, you know, <laughs> we don't know if it's for sure. So you may have the high honors. Oh, this is, and this is a true honor because this is one of my closest friends. Um, and it's funny because I met her husband when I was a young DE agent in South Florida, down in Miami, a uh, Rick Rogers, who was a detective with South Miami PD. We've been working some cases together in our, in our group there. And he called and he's like, Murph, listen, we got some GBI guys coming down doing some undercover work. We need another, some, we need another guy with a Southern accent. Can you come and work undercover with us? I'm like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I go down and I meet JP Foster. Uh, we worked together for, I don't know, 10 days. So, you know, uh, it was funny because they had brought down 2,500 uh, pounds of weed in a U-Haul truck. And we're, the scenario is we were trying to trade the weed for Coke. So that was personal use weed, right? Personal well, use. It would be now. Back then it was. Now. <laughs> um, so we set up this deal with this. You know, the bad guys will get them all lined up and they do a test run. They're supposed to bring me like 15 keys of Coke. I'm doing the UC. And now you got to understand our group, Group 10 in Miami at the time, we were bringing in hundreds and thousands of kilos per case. So this case, the guy shows up at the delivery point with one freaking kilo. <laughs> I got surveillance all around me. I'm undercover, you know, and, and I'm doing my little test in the car as I, he hands me the kilo of Coke. And um, <clears throat> it's like he knew something was wrong. And so he gets up to walk away and I'm out giving the bus signal, which I think was at that time was pulling a, a handkerchief out of your back pocket and wiping your forehead because it was the dead of summer, hunter and shit out there. And I can see my arrest team trying to turn in across traffic and they can't get across traffic. And this guy, he's, he's not running, but he's walking very quickly to get back to his car. You know, and, and it's when you're, you see, it's amazing how long it takes for that team to get there. And, and Sherry will tell it. She knows what I'm talking about here. So anyway, that's how I, I met JP. So we've been friends for, you know, 30 some years. And then lo and behold, uh, find out that he's married, you know, eventually the marriage, uh, Sherry Foster, who, these guys have sponsored Javier and I to come and speak in Georgia several different times. They even went to her hometown of Cedartown, Georgia, had a phenomenal uh, evening with everybody there, spoke in Atlanta at a couple different places. So <clears throat> this is a lady that when you hear her accent, you're not going to expect her to be a fluent Spanish speaker. She's hilarious. We're going to try and get her to come out of her shell. It's, we've been pulling teeth since, you know, all week trying to get her to tell her story. So it's an honor and a pleasure to introduce you to my one of my best friends, Miss Sherry Foster. Woohoo! Welcome, Sherry. Sherry. I didn't know if we were going to get to your intro or not, Murph. I thought he was just going to do the podcast without you. <laughs> She's got so many stories. It's a monologue. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. I'm, I'm truly honored, and I love your show. I, I do listen to it. I've listened to almost every podcast except for maybe two. Oh, that's unacceptable. Yeah, we're going to have to reschedule this now, Murph. I'm sorry. What, bring it Catch in up. next week. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, hey, well, Sherry, no, we had some fun a couple days ago because we always, as folks know, part of our pattern is we always do a pre-call because we want to get down what the story is and, and talking to you. And you, speaking of interessante, you had a very interesting childhood, which really led to your, you know, introduction into law enforcement. As we do with everybody, we always say whether it's somebody who's a, on the criminal side or on the police side. How the hell did you get started? Well, with you, how you got started was you actually were, I, I'm trying to find a tactful way to say this. I mean, you you had a hell of a childhood. Yeah. That's all I can say, you know? So let's talk a little bit about what led you into getting into this profession we call law enforcement, because it's not just like, oh, I hung around a bunch of cops. You had a really interesting path. Let, let's, let's just dive into that a little bit. Sherry Foster from Georgia, who, by the way, lost Alabama. Go ahead. Wow. Boy, you... 
go ahead and cut deep, Morgan, <laughs> right at the beginning of it. Um, I know. Everybody, that, everybody that's listening that knows me will know I'm a huge Georgia fan. So, um, <clears throat> well, I was raised in a little town outside of Atlanta. And uh, when I say little at the time, it was extremely little, Loganville, Georgia. And, um, yeah, my childhood wasn't the best. Um, my mother uh, and her partner uh, raised me. My father was not in the picture until a little bit later on. <laughs> he's a he's a character within him, in himself. Um, but there was a lot of abuse, and so I quickly realized that, um, you know, this... <laughs> This is not something that I wanted to uh, to live in forever. Hey, and Sherry, let, and let's kind of set the stage for folks, too, because we talked about this and we wanted to be tactful about it. But because you said partner and Murph and I both picked up on it. You were growing up in the South in a time to where the South was pretty conservative, right? Pretty traditional. And when you say partner, what was when you just describe what the family situation was for you at that time? Well, my mother and father had divorced uh, when I was very young, I think around six months. Um, and my mother, who was a nurse, a licensed uh, LPN, I think is what they call them, licensed practical nurse. Um, she met a lady at the one of the nursing homes where she worked, and they uh, were in a relationship. And my hometown is actually Winder, Georgia, and we lived there at the time. And I can remember vividly uh very young at a very young age when my mother announced to the family my aunts and cousins and everything that she was going to be leaving and moving in with this lady um and and let me say from the outset and, and people that know me i don't even have to say this i am not against homosexuality 100 percent have no nothing but high respect for people that love each other but I do have a lot against abuse, and that was the kind of home that I grew up in, a very abusive home. Um, uh, and that's why I was trying to make that distinction, is that we're talking about in the South during the yes. 70s, right? You're yeah. growing up. That was that was something that was frowned upon in the 70s. I mean, there were laws against it in many places, so you had the challenge of not only an abusive home, you were growing up in a relationship that was not looked upon um, kindly by, yeah, by the community. And believe me, I mean, that was not talked about back then, and nor was child abuse. Uh, you, you just did not talk about it. There were th certain things, and especially in the South. I mean, you know, the South has a reputation of, of being very genteel and cultured, um, and there are certain things you don't talk about. I think even to this day, there are probably some Southerners that wouldn't talk about certain things. Um, but, but definitely, child abuse or homosexuality was not discussed. Um, but even with all the, uh, the, the bad things that happened growing up, one of the things that I was allowed was a small TV in my bedroom and on Sunday nights, uh, and I want to say this is probably back in 74, maybe 75, uh, Kojak would come on TV, Telly Savalas, played by Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas, baby. Yes, yeah. with the sucker. With the lollipop. And with yeah. the lollipop, right. And then right after or preceding it would be The Six Million Dollar Man, by, played by Lee Majors. We can make him stronger. We can make him better. Yes. Wow. That is good. That's yes. That's a great, great evening of TV. And it was a great evening. Exactly. And that was, that was a very, that was one of my escapes um, from the real world was going into the life of TV. And so around age 11, 
I decided that I wanted to go in law enforcement. I knew, and Sherry, I'm sorry. Let me ask you, was that, was that, no, 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 you don't have to apologize. This is your podcast. But it, when you were that young and Kojak, because, you know, when I was growing up too, you always watch some of the shows and it's kind of like, you looked at those folks and it's like, they always solved the case. You know, they always got the bad guy. They always protected people. Was that kind of a, was that kind of, I don't want to say like a fantasy, but that was kind of like a dream is like somebody like a Kojak would come save you. Ah. Uh. I'm not sure that I've ever. Uh, you didn't know I had a degree in psychology it. too, either. This <laughs> yeah. is a free therapy session. He's psychotic. That's what he means. I feel like it should be lying down on a couch or something, you know, talking to y'all. But um, <laughs> and how does that make you feel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Morgan, I've never thought of it that way. Perhaps that is the case. There was no male role model in my uh, in my life uh, until I'd later, um, but. I was just so interested in law enforcement and helping people. And I've, I've always, I've been, I've always wanted to help people. I've always been for the underdog. Um, and maybe because I was the underdog for so long. And, um, but I had plenty of people that helped me. I had great friends in high school. I had one English teacher, Loretta Altman, who was phenomenal. And she, she was a strong advocate. Um, now, let me, let me say this. I never told anyone what happened because, um, and I was, I was thinking about this last night, the first time that I ever told anyone was my preacher. And in the South, you know, there's a lot of Baptist churches, and we went to a small Baptist church uh, near my home. And so I wrote a letter to him and told him what was going on, the abuse, the beatings, hospital visits. And I don't know if you're familiar with how Baptist churches work, but a lot of times they will have a person stand in the front of the church and people come around and shake hands. Well, he had me come to the front of the church while he read the letter out loud, and my mom and her partner were in the audience. And I quickly realized that I had made a grave error by voicing my opinion because uh, by the time my mother came around and her partner, I knew that there would be hell to pay when I got home. So I didn't tell anybody else anything. I was 12 at the time. I remember it vividly because I tried to kill myself. And I wanted to die because literally I thought that was the only way I could escape the, the hell that I was living in. Hey, Sherry, who was, was it your mom or the partner that was the primary abuser? The partner. If you want to say. The partner. The partner and her family. Um, so I didn't tell anybody else and until high school, and then I started talking a little bit to some of my friends. Um, but going back to what you said about back then, nothing was talked about. I remember going to school with bruises, and one of my coaches in the PE class said, uh, hey, Robinson, what, what, what happened? And, and I said, well, I hit myself in my sleep, and he never questioned it. That was it. Did he really believe that, or did, was it just one of those things that you go along to get along, you kind of cover it up, and yeah, you just kind of, um... You know, I don't know. I, I'm not in his mind. I can only assume, you know, now they're mandated to report. Right, um, and they should be. Yes, absolutely, and thank God for that, but I don't know. A lot of times, people don't want to get involved, really and truly. I think the world, the way we live in our world, it's our world only. And we want to make sure everything is copacetic in that world. And we really don't care about anybody else's until it affects our world. That's absolutely true. That's a good statement. Yeah, I mean, I, but um, 
I finally did, you know, tell a little bit about um, what was going on, but not enough. I never had girlfriends over. Uh, I was never allowed to to really go spend the night anywhere. Um, and then I was going to graduate from high school. Now, in my high school annual, I don't know if y'all did that up in Kansas. Um, what do you mean Kansas? <laughs> oh, yeah, out there. What are you talking about? I'm sorry. We had, we had we had reading. We had indoor plumbing. Believe it or not. <laughs> well, that, well, oh, sorry, West Virginia. Um, there you go. <laughs> Easy now. I'm a dogs fan. Be careful. That's right. That's right. I gotta say, at least you got that. Oh, two losers on the podcast. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, just you wait. Um, He's just a wannabe. That's all. Exactly. Um, in your annual, you know how you have your senior picture and then what you're going to do. I remember writing specifically, I mean, in fact, I still have my annual somewhere, that I wanted to be an FBI agent um, and have a Whoa, lot wait, of FBI I guess we friends. better cancel the podcast now because <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to say that. That's the one thing you cannot say on the podcast. And how does that make you feel, Sherry? <laughs> well, I have a lot of FBI friends, so let me, let me caveat this by saying that... I came to my senses and went with DEA, but um, <laughs> but I do. I love it. Yeah, By way of a police department and GBI, but we're going to get to that in a minute. But uh, yeah, yeah, but you know, you bring up how big, so like, do you remember how many were in your graduating class in high school? 99. I remember it very vividly. Uh, 99 people. Um, I graduated with an intention of doing nothing. I wanted to go to college. I, you know, I was a, a relatively smart girl, I guess as girls go, some some of the guys would say, but um, very popular. I was in all the clubs and stuff, and I wanted to go to college, but literally there was no plan. I mean, I, I did not know what I was going to do from day to day. And you were also struggling with a couple other things, too, like weight um, during high school. Yeah. I mean... And, and and it'll and it'll get. I'll tell the story later when I get to Quantico. You know, being overweight um, for women is is huge because we, whether we admit it or not, women and men, we judge people by their looks. And for me, food was a comfort. There was I could escape in a hamburger or um, some French fries or whatever, and and it was school. And food were, were my escape hatches, I guess. Um, but Well, let, let me ask you, Sherry, you said, you know, there, you had no plans after high school. Your mom had plans for you, though, didn't she? Oh, yeah. I was going to go to work and make money and support the family. I was already working. I worked in high school at a, at a little restaurant called Dairy Delight. Only in a small town can you get stuff like that. Dairy delight. Yes. Yeah, that's good food. Yes, and trust me, I had there were several jokes, and the senior class or the junior, they all the guys would pick up and go, "What's up, Sherry Delight?" I mean, it. You know, um, I won't call the guy's name, but he had he gave me a couple of names. One of my good friends, but yeah, I worked there and uh, I brought food home, and um, that was probably going to be my my life after high school which was supporting your mom and her partner and support my mom and her partner right uh looking back now and knowing what i know now about mental illness i can i believe that i'm safe to say that my mother was bipolar when she was high the good times were good and when she was low the bad times were horrendous. But something that kind of contributed to that, though, too, was she had access to a lot of prescription medications. There were some other things with, uh, uh, you know, pills at that time that 
you as a youngster, you got an early introduction into a lot of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I had a toothache, I took a Darvon or a Darvacet. Um, you know, mother, my mother being an LPN, um, I mean, and she was back in the day, and I think, I think Connie's a nurse, right, Steve? Yeah. So she would wear the full white garb, the hat, the, the, um, the white uh, uniform and the stockings and the shoes from head to toe. And she looked like an angel. I mean, she was an angel because, I mean, I'd gone to work with her and she was wonderful to her patients, but it, she never seemed to bring that home. Um, but she was addicted to prescription drugs and nicotine. I mean, it may sound really crazy, but I, I can remember some of the worst beatings were when she was out of cigarettes because we're very poor. And even though both of them had a, a steady job, um, they were horrible managers of money. And so buying a carton of cigarettes, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how much it cost because I don't smoke cigarettes at all. Um, but those were, were some pretty bad times. Um, I want to say before I continue with the story, you know, I am a huge believer in not playing a victim. I don't like people to play the victim because everybody's got a story. Everybody has something in their past that was bad um, and or in their present or, you know, whatever. But I have a, a phrase that I, I like to say, and it's choose to be a victor, not a victim. And so in, I'm telling this story to set the stage because I am a success story. And I do believe that you can you make the choice, the right choices, and you can become a success in, in whatever that means to you. I mean, uh, I think I'm a successful person. Um, You're extremely successful. And that's, except for picking college football teams. But um, <laughs> well, and we there, are, there's we one are thing you want to take away from this, this entire podcast is choose to be the victor, not the victim. What a powerful message. That's fantastic that, yeah. you know, and we're still going with your story. We're just getting started, just scratching the surface here. But that's the takeaway from this episode. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's all about choices. It is. It is. It is about choices. It's about choices you make later in life when you, when we all worked cases and we dealt with people and they say, well, it was my upbringing and stuff. And like, we'll get into that a little bit later. You go, wait, wait a minute, pal. You want to hear about my upbringing? You know? Yeah. Well, so as long as I've known Sherry, I didn't know this part of your life until we did the pre-call here just a few days ago. So that, I mean, that's, it's amazing what goes on. And I would have never dreamt that about your background. Well, and that I think is is it's we have to be careful in judging people because we really don't know where they're coming from. Sometimes, I mean, we put our our frame of reference on someone, and we could be totally wrong. So, um, but I'm, I want to get to the good part of the story. So, the, I graduated <laughs> from high school. Let's go! Oh wow, <laughs> that's this is like, where Georgia beats Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that that'll be next century. So, but uh, let's, we got, we're going to have to end this time, but grab your popcorn. Yeah. Because like you say, but in spite of all of this, there is actually a silver lining for you in high school before you get out. There is. So I, um, I had, I had an aunt in Winder that I loved. Her name was Claudine. She's, she's passed away now, but I loved her and she was a spinster, had never married. She was the only one in my family that 
my mom's partner would let us see. My mom's partner was extremely jealous of my my mother's family because my mother's family was very close, still are very, very close. And in fact, my aunt, who later became, I guess, my adopted grandmother, is um, was her closest sister. Um, so I call my aunt. I say, I want to come visit. So this was going to be my senior trip. You know, we weren't going to Mexico or Can Cancun or wherever people go for their senior trips. I was going to Winder, Georgia, um, which was about 30, 45 minutes down the road, and to stay with my aunt, who made the best spaghetti, popcorn, and pancakes. I mean, I remember that. Carbs, all carbs, obviously. Um, and so... My mother's partner found out and locked the gate, hit all the telephones in the house, and so she knew that we were trying to go, that I was going to leave. And I don't know if she maybe had a premonition that maybe I wouldn't come back. I don't know. Um, but so I actually searched for them, found the phones, and, and called my aunt and said, I'm coming over. And then my mother, the only brave thing I think she ever really did for me was she put me in the car and... Uh, we literally burst through the gate. I mean, she busted the gate open, and so we ran. Um, but she went back. So I went to stay with my aunt, and my cousin Sandra Mingus was visiting uh, during that time. I didn't really know Sandra, but I knew of her. I'd seen her a couple of times. And um, during that visit, my mother called me and said, you need to come home. Um And I said, no, I'm not coming home. I'm going to stay here a little bit longer. And I hung up the phone. And then my mother's partner called and said, you're coming home. And I was afraid of her. I mean, literally, I lived in fear. And I said, yes, ma'am. But Sandra was there. And I started talking to her a little bit. And at the time, Sandra's husband, Mike, worked for the state of Georgia. And so I went and talked with Mike. We sat in a Dairy Queen parking lot in Winder for three to four hours, and for the first time in my life, I told the whole story. I'm not sure I mentioned some of the sexual abuse issues because it's very embarrassing. Um, even as a, an adult, um, I think we're, we're, we're taught to blame ourselves when something happens, and that was how I was taught. And um, but I told him everything, and so he contacted DFACS, the Department of Family and Children's Services, and on the day that my mother came to pick me up, I made the decision not to go home. I realized, I guess at the time, that I was the only one that was in control of my destiny. And I was 17 at the time, graduated high school, no plans for college, but I knew that if I went back, I would not make it. What do you mean by that? What do, what do you think? the partner had in store for you? The reason I was going back is the day before I left home, I had brought home some food from Dairy Delight because any leftover food, the employees could take it home. And I brought home a ham sandwich. It's amazing how you remember details that like that. And it was cold. And so, um, the sandwich was, was not, we didn't have microwaves. I, I don't think at the time there were microwaves. I don't remember us having a microwave or whatever, but it was cold. So uh, the partner threw the um, sandwich at me and then had a broomstick and proceeded to beat me. 
Well, I, for some reason, decided to fight back and I pushed her against the wall. And in doing so, apparently I broke her finger. I didn't know that. I did not know it at the time. But on the telephone call, she said, um, my mother said, you have broken Pat's finger, so you need to come home and take care of her. And so I said no. And then, of course, she, the partner called and I said, uh, yes, ma'am, because I'd been in the hospital a couple of times from the beatings and I did not want to go back. And I was 17. I was I, I was an overweight 17 year old female who had no future at all until... So when you were in the hospital, nobody ever contacted the police the times you went to the hospital? Oh, no, no. I remember one time the doctor asked my mother, was was I taking drugs? Because I had such horrible stomach issues, ulcers, and it was stress. I'm assuming it was stress. And she said, no, she doesn't take any drugs. Um, No. No, I mean, I don't remember ever talking to anybody in authority growing up. Um, and much later when, you know, all this started coming out, they uh, they made a statement that I was crazy and um, this was all made up and, you know, whatever. So, um, but on that day that I decided not to go home, I was put into a foster home in Social Circle, Georgia called the Alcove. It's a transitional foster home and... Um, as a 17 year old, I wasn't a legal adult, I guess, in the state of Georgia. I don't know if that's legal now or not. Um, and I stayed there. Um, and let me say that as bad as my childhood was, I can assure you that there were kids in that foster home that had it five, 10 times worse than me. Um, I met some incredible kids. I wish I knew where they were today. I've tried to find some of them. Um, Did you guys share your stories? To an extent. Um, we knew the stories because there was this huge table in the kitchen, and we all sat there, and the older kids had chores, um, and we had took care of the little kids. Um, while I was there, a lady dropped off, uh, dropped off, left her six-month-old and two-year-old child on the courthouse steps in Monroe. And they were brought to the foster home, and so we took care of them. And I remember the two-year-old, her name was April, and I remember putting her to bed and, and thinking to myself, how could you leave a child like this? I mean, how could you do this to a child? Um. But the good news is I wasn't there long. I got a call from Sandra, my cousin, and she told me that um, she and Mike had bought bunk beds for their two boys, Brian and Clay Mingus. And I didn't really realize what she was asking, telling me, but what she was saying was, we would like for you to come live with us. And when I tell you that Mike and Sandra Mingus changed my life, saved my life, that is not that would be an understatement. I mean, they changed my entire life. Um, I went to live with them in Winder. They didn't have a lot of money. They had a small house, but it was full of love. And Brian and, and Clay, during that time, did your mom or your partner try and come by the house, try and get you, interfere with stuff? What, what was the... Cause you had to think that that partner, especially the way you've described her, is not going to just sit back. Oh, oh, no, no, she did it. She did it. Um 
when I was uh, in high school, I was president of the Y Club, the YMCA Club. And every year we would go to Rock Eagle Camp in Eatonton, Georgia, I think is where it's at. Um, and so I was there uh, right after I'd been adopted. They let me go or be, uh, been sent to the foster home. They let me go to Rock Eagle. And um, I skipped class one day. And if you know me, I'm, I'm pretty much a rule follower. I don't skip class. I love school. I love anything to do with learning. But I skipped class that day so my girlfriends and I could do something stupid like tell stories or whatever. And then Miss Altman, who is our sponsor, comes in and says, Sherry, did you skip class today? I'm like, damn, I can't even skip one class. I get caught, you know. <laughs> Miss Goody Two-Shoes here. Yes. With Sherry like, Delight. Yeah, exactly. But the reason why she asked is because my mother and her partner were waiting outside the door of the classroom I was in. Now, how they found out where I was, I have no idea. How they realized that I was in that particular class, I have no idea. But they called security. Um, later, I found out from Sandra and Mike that they had to take a TPO out on my mother because she threatened to kidnap uh, Brian and Clay. And there were a couple of times when they would show up and I would call Mike and say, please come help me. When I worked at Revco Drugs, I don't know if you remember, if they even had Revco oh, yeah. Drugs. Where oh, yeah, were Revco, from. Woolworth, you know, all of the old stores, the Ben Franklin. Yeah. But eventually they, I guess they gave up. Um, I, I can tell you for years, even as recent as a month ago, I would have dreams that I would... I was back home and I would be taken back home and that everything that I had was gone because they, they brought me back home and, um, or back to their house. And that's not a dream. That's a called a nightmare. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was bad. Then I'd wake up and realize that's not the case, but I went to Georgia Southern college because Sandra had gone to Georgia Southern college and I was a huge dog fan and still am. I want to re reiterate the fact that the dogs are freaking awesome. Go dogs. Um, Go dogs! Thank you, Steve. Um, when the dogs are playing football, Sherry and I are usually swapping text messages text, back and exactly. forth. Exactly. Yeah, and Steve, well, do you want to place any bets on the college football playoffs while we've got you here in front of millions and millions of people? Don't think I won't hold you and let her oh, just I'll whoop do it. you. Just whoop you upside the head, boy. In a heartbeat, I'll do it. <laughs> I have a friend that lives in Michigan, and I told him the other day, I said, let's place a bet because I'm good. I'm a trash talker. I can just tell you right there. When it comes to football, I'm a trash talker. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I will be a Dogs fan. I just want them to beat Michigan because I hate Michigan and Jim Harbaugh and anything that Michigan stands for and Mays and Blue and anything dealing with the, you know, just anyway, because I'm a Notre Dame guy. So, but uh, I will root for Georgia, Georgia on that game. Go, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk about bets later, but let us get back to our regularly scheduled podcast, which is about you. So you go to Georgia Southern. Why? Wh I mean, you were, you guys were poor. How the hell did you end up going to college? Uh Scholarships. I got a couple of financial uh, aid uh, uh, loans, um, and I was, you know, I was a good student, so I, I remember getting some type of scholarship. Um, and then I worked. I worked. Uh, I worked two jobs for a while, and then um, I had taken Spanish in high school and had learned it. I really liked it. And then when I got to college, I took it and worked in the foreign language department. And my professor asked me if I would like to go to Spain and study in the studies abroad program. Uh, for, uh, the University of Georgia had a program. And I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, sign me up. Well, it's $3,000. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, on second thought. So I called home and talked to Senator Mike. And they uh, took out a loan, paid for my trip. 
Now, keep in mind, this is 1983. So $3,000 to go to Europe was super. It is not that way now. In fact, I went back 10 years later. We got people blow that much in a night at a restaurant, you know. But it was a great program. I I learned the language. I mean, you were, and I... I, um, It's kind of immersion. Where where did you go to in Spain? In um, Segovia which is the city of aqueducts. That's what it's known for. But we, uh, we, we studied in Segovia, and I took uh, two classes that were extremely hard because my professor was a native Spanish speaker with a tha. Uh, he was from the Basque country, and um, I think that's the tha. And so his name was um, Thuga Segovia, something like which is really strange, but well, that's the old Castilian, right? It's, so it's instead of gracias, it's gracias, gracias. you know. And exactly, the, yeah. yeah. And the, I find the, myself doing that. I, I'm a big believer that the mother language is the perfect Spanish. So, um, but I, I did well. I, you know, an immersion is a, is a great way to learn it. And then I came back and as a graduation present, Sandra might pay the loan off. I didn't have to pay anything back. So that was a, a phenomenal gift. One of the best things I ever did was, was learning Spanish because it has opened up, up doors for me. And Steve can tell you, it is good to know the language, especially when you're in the country that speaks Spanish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or speaks the language. So, um, but I still held on to my dream of being law enforcement and, um, so when I, in 1984, I... Well, hold on. Let's, let's, let's not get past Spain too fast, because I want to hear a little <laughs> bit about this. So <laughs> you are now a little country girl out taking your first... That's got to be the first time you're on an airplane too, right? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the, the only trip I ever took growing up was on a Greyhound bus to freaking plantations, Plant City, Florida. Because we won a trip, my parent, uh, mom won a trip. What I don't know what kind of trip it was, but it was a, it was horrible. And I had to sit beside this old long-haired hippie guy who asked me to smoke pot with him the entire way. And I'm like, "What's pot? What what is that?" I mean, I was naive. Doesn't even cover it. Okay. So, but how long how long were you in Spain? I want. I think it's a three month program. It was all summer. It was all summer. We, uh, it was wonderful because we were in Segovia, and then we took a tour down to the Costa del Sol. So we went to Malaga, Sevilla, Toledo. Uh, Malaga was my favorite, and then we came back up to Madrid, and you know, got to tour the museums and stuff, and had some incredible paella. Uh, of course, paella is all over the country, and depending on where you're at in the country, they change the recipe. Um, but I fell in love with Spain. I went back in 1993 to visit. It, it was a little bit more than $3,000, um, but it was a phenomenal country. My roommate was from St. Louis, Missouri, and she didn't speak Spanish as well as I did, but she had such a northern accent, they understood her better than they did me. Well, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like that's like putting you guys trying to get you guys. I need an interpreter for this podcast between the two of you, most likely. Hey, can you can you understand this? But I uh, I was told. <laughs> sure, Murph. Sorry, that Again, was a visual. Number of true friends you still have after you left Virginia, you traitorous bastard. Had to sneak that in again. All right. Oh, but quick aside too. By the way, my nephew Joel Mason, who is currently the county attorney in uh, Clay County, Kansas graduate of Washburn University Law School, spent a year teaching English as a second language in Bilbao uh, there in northern Spain. So that's the same thing. We had those discussions. It had the Castilian and stuff got to go there. So when you said that, that's why I wanted to know. I mean, it's having gone nowhere and then your first trip is an international trip to Spain. 
Oh, it's, it's so beautiful. It, and, and it's so funny because I remember coming in one day from class and talking to my parent, the, the, the mother and father, because, you know, we were exchange students, so we lived in their homes. And the father's name was Bienvenidos, which means welcome. That was literally his name, Bienvenidos. I don't know his last name. But I came in one day, and I think I was talking about a boy I'd met. Like, oh, my God, yo encontré un hombre, que conocí un hombre, or whatever. And the, the, the father stopped me and said, Sherry, do you realize you just said all of that in Spanish? Because they spoke no English, none. That That's a whole immersion process, right? You go to the country and you literally sink or swim. And and having learned Spanish and from, a, from Southerners, I got off the plane and I'm like, holy crap, what are they saying? I don't even know. But in two weeks... Hola, y'all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, did, they got the hola, but not the y'all. Como yeah. estas, y'all? Yeah, but it was an incredible experience. I learned a lot. I learned that most or some Spanish words have a double meaning. <laughs> Sexual is one of them, which I totally use all the time. I didn't realize I was using it. Um, but there were some really, really funny stories about how, and I'm sure Steve did it too, and everybody does it, you know, like embarazada doesn't mean that you're embarrassed. It means that you're pregnant. And right. so little things like that, you really do have to learn because you can get in a world of trouble. <laughs> I can imagine being at a bar and <laughs> turning around. I'm, I'm so pregnant. I mean, embarrassed. I mean, <laughs> yes. Well, when you're a guy and you say that, you really get some strange looks. Oh. Yeah, I, and there's other <laughs> Unless things. Unless you're from West Virginia, it's kind of natural there. But uh, I wish it was. Well, I'd be, I'd be so wealthy. I'd buy you and I'd bury you. Okay, let's move on. Uh, I don't want to get into some of the stories. They were lurid, but nonetheless, I, I did. I, I took to it. I had an affinity for languages. Still do. I love it. Um, so I came back and I started my law enforcement career as a winder police officer. Well, hold on. No, no, no. We, we skipped, we skipped too far ahead. You got to tell us now you come back to college, right? So how did you end up majoring in criminal justice? Um, well, I took all the classes. I actually majored, I actually, I don't know if they still do, but Georgia Southern was college at the time, not university, but I ended up getting a BS in, uh, criminal justice and a BA in Spanish. So I actually had a, a double, uh, degree with the minor in philosophy, which, um, I guess I have used through the years. I loved philosophy. Um, but I, uh, I took every class. I taught English to, uh, non-English non speakers too, like you're, you're mentioning your family member. And, and it was hard. English is a tough language. If you're not a native speaker, there are so many rules. And Spanish has a lot of rules too. But I would say that English is a, one of the toughest languages to learn for people that are not native speakers. Yeah, who would have thought that Jack is short for, you know, Bill and Steve and Bob, you know, you have all of these different, you know, names. How did the, how the hell did you get to Bill from, you know, William or Jack from Joseph, you know, so it's very tough. But the reason I asked you that is, I mean, you, did you graduate in four years? Did you do it early? I mean, because you seem like an overachiever. Um, I think it was actually five years because I did the double degree, the double major, yeah, the double degree. Overachiever. You had to do two degrees. One wasn't good enough. You had to get two. Yeah, because I started in 80 and then 85. During the summer of 84, though, is when, or I, I want to say the summer of 84, or right as I finished college, I started with the Winder Police Department. And um, 
let, let's let's walk into that a little bit because Winder is how close from where you grew up at with your mom and her partner? About 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes, maybe. Was that not a little difficult to be to be going back to work that close still? And I assume at the time, both of them were still alive, still had the relationship going? Um, I don't know that I thought about it. I, 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 I think I always thought about them. I mean, it was in my mind that they were not far. But by that time, I had been in Statesboro, where Georgia Southern is, and had... Um, gotten a little bit more independent and um and, and to be honest with you sander and mike provided such an incredibly loving home that i felt safe and you felt safe enough we skipped over one thing which is very important something that very few 17 year olds do you went and got yourself adopted oh it's tough i mean i i asked her I asked Sandra and Mike, why did y'all do it? Why did you take a chance on a girl you didn't even know? Um, and Sandra's answer was, because you're family. And family comes first above everything. Wow. That's, that's a powerful statement, too. <laughs> it, it is. Wow. And, and, and Mike echoed that. But he also said, you know, Sherry, when we heard your story, you, we, we, we couldn't just sit there and not do anything. Because I... He, he said, I'd always heard about you, but didn't know you. But once I heard what you had gone through, there was no way that we couldn't step in. And, you know, Brian and Clay never meant, never questioned it. I mean, they were four and six, I think. Um, and they're both incredible men. And um, they accepted me right away. I love them. I mean, I we have a great bond. And... I think that was why, that that was my family. And when I tell you that I had never had that feeling of family and home until then, that meant everything to me. Everything. That just changed your whole world, man. I mean, these are, those are real heroes. You know, they people are. throw that word hero out for everything nowadays, but that they saved your life. You're absolutely correct. They, they did. did. Finally, somebody who stood up for you after all those years of everybody looking the other way or reading your letter in church that you thought was going to be private, oh, you know, in the beatings and stuff. It's like, finally, somebody out there that says, not, not today, not on my watch. We're not going to... And folks are wondering, why are we spending so much time with this? Well... Because we know the story Sherry's going to tell. And when you hear the story that she's going to tell and you understand where she came from, you're going to understand why this case had a huge impact, why she was part of it, you know, and, and where this is going. So That's right. This is a, this is a true success story, a 180-degree oh, turnaround that just, you know, went from horror to one of the most uh, phenomenally successful law enforcement professionals I've ever met. And she's my friend. Ha! Not yours, mine. Go dogs. Yeah, I know it's plural. Uh, it's not plural. It's singular. My friend. My only friend. <laughs> That's why you were holding up that finger earlier, because you're indicating Sherry is your only friend. Read between but the lines, we, can you? Uh, you've, used, you've used that like 10 times. You're going to have to come up with something new. You need a can new you hear game. It? Let me turn it up. Turn it up for How's you. That, I know. that better? Can you hear it? Here, let me do, let me let me double the uh, volume. Um, I've I've seen all of these, man. This is you, you, your A game is slid since you moved to Florida. Yeah, but, since so, I met uh, you, that's when it starts sliding. <laughs> going down real quick. Sorry, Sherry. <laughs> Sherry, back to a regularly scheduled podcast. But Sherry, for you though, how did you end up? Uh, how did you end up finding out about the job at Winder? I mean, is that where you picked? Did they come to you? So now let's let's start on this glide path. Now, how did you end up? getting into Winder, you know, what was that process? 
Um, we lived in a little, small little house on 3rd Avenue in Winder, and across the street was the chief of police, Jimmy Terrell. And he and his wife, Ellen, are wonderful people, and they were good friends of Mike and Sandra's. And so Jimmy knew. I had talked to him about getting in law enforcement, so he hired me. I think it was supposed to be like an internship, but I worked, and I got paid. Uh, not a lot. $13,000, I think, is what the, the salary for the year was. But... Um, but I worked dispatch and I worked the road. Um, I loved it. And, you know, being in uniform, I have so much respect for law enforcement, irrespective of what area they're in. Um, but being in uniform is tough. It's tough, but it's good because that's where you learn how to deal with people, uh, where you learn to show respect and hopefully get respect. And that's where you learn to apply the law. So you better know what you're doing when you pull that car over and what law you're fixing to enforce. Um, my, I think my first felony case was uh, some idiot passed a $1 bill with 20 20s taped on the uh, the corners <laughs> at the McDonald's. When you told us that in the pre-call, I'm going, oh my God, is that not so obvious? I mean, did it actually work anywhere? It did work for a little while. And I think, I actually want to say that what, got him caught was he during choir practice or something at the church he broke in and stole uh money and stuff out of the the purses i may be getting those confused but i think that's what actually got him caught um and uh, my second felony case which which was hilarious which is an interesting i pulled over a guy for drinking he was coming out of the liquor store parking lot and i got up behind him and i stopped him and he was all over the road and um, when I stopped him, you know, I said, you know, can I see your license ID, blah, 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 uh, insurance. And I said, do you know why you st I stopped you? He goes, hell no, I don't know why you stopped me. And who are you? And blah, blah. Turns out he was a city councilman. And so I called my sergeant and I'm like, sergeant, I've got a, I think I got a DUI here. When he gets there, my sergeant says, are you sure about this, Sherry? I said, well, he's got an open ball of wild turkey in the, in, in, right next to him. And he's freaking, you can't even get close to him without, you know, getting drunk yourself. Pretty darn sure. And he was, he was DUI, but um, he, he wanted my badge number because he was going to report me to the chief. And I said, you know, feel free, but um that's what I mean when you learn to deal with people and, and, you know, despite it all. And even during the fingerprint session, which if you've ever fingerprinted a drunk, their hands are, especially late at night, their hands are stiff. Oh, what fun it is to oh, write and oh, sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's cussing me the whole time. And he goes, what's your badge number? I'm like, 115, sir. Sherry Robinson. There you go. Feel free to call. But I learned quickly that <laughs> people don't like to be arrested. Um, and they don't like to be told they're doing wrong. And um, so, but I loved it. I loved uniform. I just didn't like the money. And um, one day I got him. Well, before you go any further, your, your first day on the job, didn't you have a little encounter with someone, your sergeant? Oh, oh God, how could I forget that? He's your mentor, right? He's the guy you started looking up to. You want to emulate his pattern, right? Tell us about that. This was my first. Tell, tell us about this. Tell us about this you know, this culturally sensitive, oh, yeah. you know, person that was going to be your supervisor. <laughs> lieutenant. He was my lieutenant. Uh, I won't say his name just because I don't, I don't want to embarrass his family, but uh, Winder, Georgia, if you know, is the home of a notorious Dixie Mafia guy by the name of Billy Sunday Burt. 
who was a murderer. He was an assassin. Um, I just, so many podcasts about him and all that, but his, one of his MOs were throwing people in wells. And in the South, you know, we have these wells where we get fresh, wonderful water from. And I don't know if you ever see, if you ever seen a body that's been in the water, it is, ugh. I mean, the skin peels off. It's horrible. And, um, they're bloated and all that. You know, that. it's even worse too on those. You, then, then try and fingerprint them and the skin slides off. I mean, there's, there's a whole process for having to fingerprint bodies that have been immersed in water. They're just mushy. So he had a book of pictures of victims of dead bodies and stuff. And he brought me in this little room and he said, no, Missy, I want you to look at these pictures. So I did and all that. And I, you know, I was not a dummy. I realized that there was a, <laughs> there was a method to his madness. So he said, um, I get through the pictures and, um, I said, do you have any more? Because yeah, I'll be damned. If he Thank was you, sir. May me. I have another? Thank you, sir. Yes. By the way, which movie was that? Uh, Goodfellas. No, that was Animal House. Oh, Animal House. Sorry. Remember the the pledge, pledging the fraternity there. Thank you, sir. May I have another? I'm sorry. It, I'm sorry. I, I'm. I realized culturally, I'm. I'm way ahead of you. You. You two Georgia yeah. people there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, we I got will names say for people like you. Before I get back to the story, I will say that Die Hard is my favorite Christmas movie too. Besides. Oh! Love actually, I love Die Hard. Die Hard, that's right. The greatest Christmas. And uh, Cherry, later I'll tell you too. Uh, I will tell you off the podcast because I ran one of the greatest psychological operations around uh, Die Hard, and I, I I actually had military people convinced there was a terrorist attack that was imminent. And I'll tell you about. I don't want to give it away because we're going to tell them on that. But anyway, let's get back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you're there with a uh, lieutenant, you know. Um, you know, Mr. Sensitive, you know, and uh, Mr. Empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. Lieutenant Empowerment. Yes. And and his whole goal is to what? Run you off? Oh, well, I mean, he and, and, and to his to his in his defense, I guess in that time, there were a lot of women in law enforcement. This is 1984. I think there were two other women. Uh, there was an investigator or detective and then an admin person. Um, maybe 20 cops altogether, but he made it very clear. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it didn't take a genius to figure out he didn't like me because he said uh, there are two places that women should be, and that's one in the kitchen and in the bedroom. But it's definitely not a police department. So, um, In that day and age, that would be called a $20 million settlement. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's been you know, through the years, but listen, it's amazing. Real quick aside too, you were talking about that. Steve and I have talked with other folks about that, you know, about when they've come up like, uh, Cheryl Nietzsche, who's our current episode out episode 27, she was ambushed by a spree killer. Very few women in law enforcement. When I went through, I went through my city or yeah, my, uh, city Academy in 82, very few women on the police department there. When I went on the state patrol Academy, only the third woman in 50 years that had ever been hired by the state patrol was in our class. So 1984, you know, they were starting to get there, starting to progress in some of the areas. But man, I got to tell you, I just, we had a couple folks like that too, a couple of Neanderthals, and they referred to them as skirts. We don't need another skirt around exactly. here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And if, and if I were, you know, I, I remember I started as a dispatcher, you know, 911, and, um, and, as in every police department, they play jokes on, you know, the first time I ever got out of my car or got into my patrol car, every light was on, every siren was on, everything. You turn, you crank it up and the whole thing goes crazy, you know, but, um, but that didn't deter me. I loved it. And, um, 
while I was at the police department, a guy named Billy Hutto, who was a GBI agent, I think he may have been the sack of the Athens office, uh, came in because he knew Jimmy. And One of rural rehab, Sherry, is you have to define acronyms. You feds, I know some other folks are getting good at it. So when you say he's the sack from the GBI office, let's be clear. So he was a special agent in charge of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation office in Athens, Georgia, where the unit... As we know the way Nathan Katziff says that it, it's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, and Nathan. Athens happens to be the home of what? The University of Georgia. There you go. Go, go dogs. dogs. Um, but anyway, so Jimmy introduced me to, to Mr. Hutto, and uh, I applied with the GBI and was hired as what at that time was the local violator squad. And if I remember correctly, we were just contractors. We drove our own car, but we did. It was all undercover. Um, and I was talking to you guys in a sense were like, I mean, the good guy informants, basically you guys were operating as UCs, you know, Cole. um, yeah, Cole and, and JP and my husband, and I were talking about it this morning. The things we did on LBS, you could never do now and take an act of Congress because we would do, we would make buys with no surveillance, no backups, um, crazy, crazy stuff. I don't think they do that anymore, but, but I learned very quickly that I was pretty good by, bullshitting people excuse excuse my language um oh i'm shocked steve are you shocked <laughs> oh, my ears <sighs> you should see her when she gets mad hey but by the way real quick for frame of reference too because a lot of people this is a podcast it's not a visual you're dealing now with all these cops you're dealing you're buying dope and stuff and you and we had this discussion about you and michelle linhart who's taller you or michelle <laughs> I'm taller, I think. Um, she's a lot smarter, and and uh, I've, she's one of my mentors. I, I love that woman, and uh, think the think the world. But Michelle of, was five three and a half and had to poof her hair. Okay, well she's got me because I've got I'm five three and a half with no poof. I mean I never had <laughs> hair that would poof, but she's so she's got me on that I guess. But she's a, she's a very fine individual, and I. Yeah, I think the world of her. But and, and I'll tell you, too, let me say this about law enforcement. I think the reason why it's sad to me when when women are highlighted because there's so few of us. So if one of us screws up, it is really highlighted. You know, everybody knows. But there are some excellent, excellent women in law enforcement and um, undercover. I, I always hate these pictures and these movies that depict women in undercover capacity using drugs, sleeping with the informants or the bad guys or whatever, that doesn't happen. It did happen to me. And, and I don't think it happened to um, most of the people that I work with. Um, luckily, I have the gift of gab, which um, I can talk my way out of something. Um, and, and I loved matching wits with the bad guys. I, I think the best part was when you're undercover and you sell your story, because I don't look like a cop. I don't look like a cop. I, they never know I spoke Spanish because that was a, a good thing. I could listen to the conversations and they would never know that I understood them. Um, I like being, I loved being underestimated, I guess, because they thought I, I could play the dumb blonde really, really well, um, convincingly well. And um, when you took them down and said, you know, you're under arrest because I'm a, I'm a GBI agent or DEA, they're like, what the hell? I mean, they literally were shocked. Some of them were. And um, and then some of them would say, oh, I knew you were a cop all along, which I said, well, that makes you even dumber than you are. But yeah. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, right. So, you know, as a cop all along, and you continue to sell me dope and set up Freaking deals over the phone, you know, right. Okay, okay, pal. Use that as your moron. brilliant legal defense. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is, a, this is true. I don't know if it's just in the South, but literally there was a rumor that went around that if you ask someone three times if you are a cop and they said no, you could use that as a defense Use that on the stand as defense, and I literally. You know who you know who that rumor was spread by? <laughs> no, DEA agents. <laughs> uh, whatever works. Well, I mean, I remember this guy. Are you a cop? No. Are you a cop? No. Are you a cop? No. Okay, good. We're good. We're good. What is We're this? Solid. Beetlejuice, 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 yeah, and then exactly. you know, all of a sudden he appears. You know, or Bart Simpson. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But um, and 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 I've had defense attorneys use that in court. But Miss Robinson, didn't you, Agent Robinson, didn't you tell them you weren't a cop? Well, yeah. So you lied. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm in undercover capacity, and I think the Supreme Court has said it's okay to lie as a law enforcement The Supreme official. Court has ruled on the use of trickery and chicanery. That is the actual term. Yes. Which is subterfuge, Steve. That means you can, you can deceive people, Steve. Well, I'm pretty sure if you told them, yeah, I'm a cop, they probably wouldn't have done any business with you, right? Probably not. Probably not. So... Um, but I stayed with LVS for about a year. Um, that was 85 to 86. I actually applied with uh, the DEA, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, in 1986, but there was a hiring freeze. And how many times have we heard that from everybody, whether it was Lou Velozzi talking about ATF or Jeff Moore talking about DEA, you know, or, you know, everybody, you know, no matter what state, everybody seems to have dealt with a hiring freeze. That's just, that's what you go through. Yeah. Yeah. And it was good. Listen, I got promoted to a spe as a special agent and was assigned to the Atlanta Regional Drug Office. Uh, my husband and I were partners then. He was he was married to a wonderful woman at the time. We we uh, we did a lot of UC together. And Steve's right. I mean, working undercover is I think it's a lost art. I don't even know if people really do it that much anymore. Um, but I am married to a man that is a legend. I mean, he is an incredible undercover and we would, we would go as brother and sister and, um. Well, if he's so good at undercover, how do you know he's really your husband? Oh, wow. Wow, Morgan, you're deep. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we're here for. Let me think about that. Man, or he's a dip. Which... <laughs> we're here to ask the tough questions. Yeah. You promised me, you promised me that you wouldn't use trickery and chicanery. So, yeah. um, you know, you know, we probably ought to have JP on a later if, in, uh, episode because he is hilarious. He'll have you falling out of your chair. Oh, he is. But but I, but I am telling you the truth when I tell you that he is an incredible undercover. Um, but I, I want to tell a quick story. So when we would do the takedown signal, um, we would use um people's names and and um like i think for a while we used a guy named phil galifianakis who was an agent who was paralyzed um in an accident or so i can't remember why but on uh, one particular occasion we're in marietta working with the cobb county drug squad and jp and i are undercover and he says to the bad guy we're buying meth you know a guy named gary garner well at the time gary garner was our supervisor and that was our takedown signal so you give the takedown signal, and normally what happens within, you know, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, boom, you know, the cavalry comes in, and, and there you go. Well, they didn't come in. 
So we're sitting there looking at each other and, and JP says again, are you sure you don't, you know, I mean, the guy looks at him and goes, yeah, I think I do. And he goes, oh shit. Okay. And so he goes, are you sure you know him? Or do you, or do you know this guy, Gary Garner? He goes, yeah, man, I've already told you I've known the damn guy, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, holy shit. And they came through the door, but it, it, it feels like an eternity, right, Steve? After you give that takedown signal and, and your <laughs> the agents come in, and that's a pretty tricky time because it's, the gig is going to be up very, very quickly. So, but working undercover. There's getting ready to be some severe violence, either from the cops or from the bad guys, if they pull out guns. Yes, it just, exactly. It is a, it's a tense exactly. situation. Um, but with the GBI, and especially as a special agent, because I was one of the fewest, there was only like one Spanish speaker. I think Rosemary King was an in intelligence. Later they hired Lydia Lipsy, who later went to DEA. Um, but I was a Spanish speaker. And so I did a lot of translating. I worked homicides. I was brought to do a couple of things. And, and then in 1987, um, I was asked to assist on a child molestation case. So let's let's put a pin in that before we get there, because that's that's kind of the beginning of it. Let's I want to kind of recap a little bit because you go on from GBI later to go on to DEA and spend a long time at DEA. So we want folks to know there's another part to the story. But um, why was it that you gravitated towards working drugs? Was that just the assignment, or did you was it something from prior history or? Why is it you focused on that as opposed to saying, hey, I wanted to go, you know, work patrol and go into investigations and do sex crimes or to do, uh, you know, investigate other things? W what was it about dope that kind of pulled you that direction, if if at all? Well, I, I think it I think subconsciously, I'm not sure that I consciously made that decision because of my mom. But, you know, I had seen her abuse the drugs. And so I knew that that was not good. Um I literally never saw, uh, I had seen pot, uh, when I finally got to meet my father, who was a huge member of the clan, uh, which is a whole different story. Um, and I didn't know him well, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but, uh, one of his stepsons had brought out some marijuana and I saw it, but until I became a cop, I'd never seen any drugs, cocaine or anything else. But I knew that, that, prescription drugs especially had really affected me and affected my mom and and the way she treated me. So I, th I think maybe that was it. I think the other thing too is that I love people and I, 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 I'm not shy, shocking, I know, um, but I, I like matching wits and like I said, fooling them and getting them to buy my story and then getting them to to sell me the drugs, um, I don't know, there's just something satisfying about that. Well, it's it's kind of why we named our podcast, too, The Game of Crimes. I mean, it's, you know, the one mistake a lot of rookies would make, too, they come on thinking that they start working the street and they need to start talking like gang members or other people, you know, hey, get your, get, you know, whatever it is they do. And it's like, guys, you know, when I used to teach interview and interrogation, it's like, guys, here's the challenge. If you go down to their level, they're good at that because that's what they've done for years and months. It's very difficult for them to operate at your level. Bring them up to your level. Interview them in ways that they're unprepared for. You know, make sure you have your ducks in a row. But that was like you. I was the challenge, too. It's like you bring somebody in. It's like, say, I'm not going to talk to you. Okay, fine. You know, 
But the fact is, they didn't. They didn't lawyer up. They sat there, and so to me, they they wanted to play the game. They wanted to see, yeah, you know, can you get me to say something or do something? And a lot of times, it's not even getting them to. They don't have to say, "Hey, I did it." They just have. You know, I used to tell people, it's easier for me to prove that you lied to me than it is to prove that you told me the truth. The truth is, it's it's out there. It's unchangeable. But a lie. That's controvertible. I can find that you lied to me about something. And that's, I think that's kind of why we kind of settled on the name Game of Crimes. And that's what I love to hear about what you're saying. It's like when you're out there, it is that thing is, can I sell you a legend? Can I sell you a story that makes you believe that I am who I say I am? And then the fun is always says, eh, I wasn't, I really am a cop, you asshole. You should have ran when you had the chance. I thought you were a cop. Now you're a double asshole. Yeah. I asked you three times. That's entrapment. Oh, well. It's <laughs> crazy. Another time uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, Miss Reagan had a program say no to drugs, if you remember. She came to Atlanta, and I, I want to say it was the old World Congress Center, what they used to call it. I think it's something else now. But uh, I was buying dope off one of the waiters. And on this particular night, uh, we were going to take him down, and he comes out. I meet him behind the World Congress Center, and he sells me cocaine, uh, whatever, an ounce or whatever. And he's laughing, and he said, guess what? I just served Miss Miss Reagan, and as I was pouring her tea, she says, just say no to drugs. He said, yes, ma'am. I say no all the time, but I'm saying yes to you, talking to me. And I said, that's great. You're under arrest. And he was like, What? Beep, beep, you know. So, I mean, it was like, that's one of the guys that said, I knew you were the police all the time. And I'm like, well, that really makes you dumber than you really are. But, I mean, the 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 stories. I think, too, that I saw a lot of kids. I mean, we arrested a girl that's so dope to me where she had hid it in her daughter's diaper in the car seat. The daughter's sitting there. Underneath there is the dope, and that's how she got the dope. And that infuriated me. Anything to do with kids infuriated me, and I wanted her to go to jail so badly. Oh, yeah. And then the worst one with that is not hiding it under the diaper. It's hiding it in the diaper that's in the trash. Yeah. You know, Yeah. You know, putting the, the crack in there or the other stuff. We had several cases like, yeah. And they just, they don't realize they're setting their kids up, you know, for victimization, you know. And you present something like that in front of a jury. Oh, my goodness. You want to sway a jury against the defendant? Just bring that little bit of evidence yeah. out. Yeah, that's when the jury's only out for 14 seconds. It took them 12 seconds to elect the form and two seconds to find your ass guilty, and now they're back. So That's very true. So let, let's start getting into this case now, too, because I, we've laid a lot of, I think, great groundwork, too, because you've been challenged with a lot of stuff. I mean, you, you go into law enforcement, and now, like you say, you've got the ability to actually affect change, not just be... Uh, uh, you know, you like say you're not a, you chose not to be a victim. You decided to do something about it. But let's so let's start talking about this case, and it involves uh, somebody in a position of trust, somebody dealing with kids, which you have a lot of familiarity with. So how did that? How did it come about that you were asked to be on this case? And then we'll we'll set some context for it here in a second. Well, I first was asked because um, they needed a Spanish speaker to go to Mexico, and the case involved a hospital uh, called Anawake in Douglas County, Georgia. Um, I think they actually had a campus in Florida, and they had a campus in Rockmart, which is Polk County, which is where I live. Um, but allegations had surfaced about the director, um, Louis Petter, abusing uh, children, boys, and I went back and I was thinking about this uh, night before last, and I think he had actually been accused of it back in the 50s. 
and even in the 60s. Yeah, we pulled that up. So the original accusation, actually, he, he founded it in 1962 as a psychiatric care institution, wilderness therapy. But in 1970, he was removed as the administrator of the facility following a State Department of Human Resource investigation of alleged sexual abuse, and they covered it up in 1970. But it continued. And um, Marty Zahn was the GBI agent that was the case agent, a phenomenal agent, great guy. Um, and Douglas County, uh, Sheriff, the sheriff of Douglas County at the time was Earl Lee, who was, a, who was an iconic figure in himself. Uh, and and he, he, was, he was like a dog with a bone. And so he assigned, uh, they started investigating and then called. How did the original, how did the original case, uh, how did the lead original case, you know, come in? How did the case get started? Was it uh, a report from somebody? Do you recall how, how the, you know, how the investigation was initiated? Because we actually have a guest coming up, uh, Trisha Cannon, who will be our next episode, uh, b- the one before yours. You know, and in GBI, I mean, you have to be called in. You are not an originating agency, um, except for certain things, right? So, what was it? How did the case get started? You know, what was the initial leader? What was the initial report that set you down this path? Um, I want to say that uh, um, the mother of one of the boys came forward and said, "I think there's something going on." Um, and then the sheriff called GBI in, and. Um, and Zahn is, is hilarious because he can he can talk just like Sheriff Lake. But um, it was a case that I think originally nobody thought would go anywhere. Like a lot of cases, they start and like, OK, well, let's let's see what they got. If there's anything to it, we'll let it we'll investigate. But there's probably nothing to it, because, again, Lewis Petter had a lot of money. He was well connected politically. Um, and then once GBI started looking at it, then Marty said, oh, there is definitely something here. And so, uh, they found out that, um, Petter was taking the boys on camping trips or, um, trips to Mexico. Um, I think he was actually using the boys to curry or some money down there, to buy the properties, because he had quite a few properties in Mexico, and particularly in Pachuca, Mexico, and um, and I want to say in Hidalgo. But um, so we went to Mexico, and uh, we had a, uh, one of the guys that, one of the kids that had uh, had been a victim uh, with us. And, um, you know, at the time when, when he, he told us his story and we started hearing and I started hearing all the stories and uh, Marty and I would talk to people, we'd interview people and hear these horrendous stories of this guy who was being trusted by these children and their parents to help their kids because, um, you know, predators, they can almost, they almost have like a sixth sense of their prey of who is the most vulnerable. Let me pick on them. They come from a broken home or, you know, they're wayward, whatever. And so what Petter would do, um, we later found out after Marty had uncovered some tapes was that during the sessions, um, he was uh, counseling them, I quote, air quote, counseling them. Um, I don't know if he would put them under hypnosis or during the session, um, then, um, he would molest them. And at that time in the state of Georgia, 
sodomy was against the law. And so I think originally that was some of the charges that came out. But, you know, the, the, I think the sad thing was, and thank God it got overturned, was some of the victims were also charged with sodomy because it is against the law. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, yeah, let's, we'll dive into that in a second. How old, when you, so a couple things, how old were some of the victims that you initially started talking to? And when you started talking with them, coming from the background you did, the, the upbringing you had, I mean, I don't want to say it was easy for you, but it was easy for you in a sense to to really look at somebody, hear them talk and understand that's authentic. They're telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. You you I think and you develop in law enforcement and especially if you have that same experience, you develop an ear for the truth. I mean, you can tell when somebody's embellishing or whatever, but there's something about a person telling their story they're coming from a place that is so authentic and raw that you know they're telling the truth. And, you know, growing up, there was sexual abuse with myself. Um, so I knew it as soon as, as the informant started talking or as soon as another kid would start talking. I, I, I don't know if I could put it into words, but you feel it. And... When I heard the stories of how this man in a trusted position is taking advantage of already vulnerable, already kids that have issues, it just infuriated me. I mean, it infuriated me. And I will tell you that I, you know, even though I did work some of these cases as a translator or co-case agent, I did not want to work child cases. I did not. I respect the hell out of these guys and girls that work uh, the child pornography cases, child molestation cases, because they you have to have a heart for it and a stomach for it because it will well, make you yeah, sick. Yeah, that's the thing, too, because I remember as a detective when my kids were young or my daughter was especially young and I got a case of a, a child killed had to go to the autopsy. I'm like, eh, I ain't doing it. Sorry. You get, get somebody else. And I remember the guy, Harvey Marcotte went for me and it's like, I am not going to this thing because I've had enough, yeah. you know, I've it's, and, but I, I want to go back. What was the age range of, of we'll talk about all the victims later, but what ended up being the age range of the victims were the majority of them underage, under 18 were the majority of them overage. Do you, do you recall some of the stats on that? I don't, I know that the guy that we had, um, working with us and and only after he had been a victim or actually i think he actually worked for anna wakey and it was still being um taken advantage of i i want to say that maybe as 13 to 17 to 20 i mean they were teenagers but i want to say that maybe they were even 14 and 15 year olds um i, I don't I don't remember specifically, but they were young enough that their parents had looked for a place, I guess, to put them that they could trust. And and believe me when I tell you, there were quite a few kids there. I mean, they had three campuses, like I said. Um, and I've thought about this, how the parents must have felt when they found out. Um, I'm surprised nobody killed him because I, I'm sure that us all being parents I mean I can tell you if somebody touched my kid they'd probably have to hold me back um, yeah. 
Um, what 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 person? What body, sir? I have no idea what you're talking about. I've been home all night long. Yeah. I have 14 witnesses who can attest to where I'm at. But let's not jump ahead too far because I want to go back. Let, let's talk about bringing this this first informant and this victim in. You had a different perspective, maybe than some of the others. Were there some people who didn't quite believe this kid? You know, did everybody believe him at first? What was kind of the you know the environment right then? No, I think uh, for sure Marty and Ron Shaddix believed him. I mean, they Marty had heard enough stories. Um, you know, they. I think Earl Lee had a saying, which is wasn't originated with him, but you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it must be a duck. Um, you know, when you get enough people saying the same thing independently, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, kind of thing. So yeah, they believed him, and then uh, when when. Uh, the kid agreed to go to Mexico and show us the houses where they were taken. I mean, Peter had a lot of property, a lot of money, a lot of influence. Um, and in and, and, and this particular area, Pachuca was a very small community or village. It's, it's gotten a lot bigger now. But um, there was a restaurant in Hidalgo that we went in, and above the door was a coat of arms from Manawaki Hospital. So right there, <laughs> that was a clue that, you know, he put money everywhere. Um, was, was he is he was he from Mexican descent or what's the connection to Mexico with him? I don't know. He had he had some places in Canada he took him to and Mexico. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I can only. Ass- I think it's jurisdiction. I think if you know you cross a border and stuff, you make it that much more yeah. difficult to investigate because until the U.S. changed the laws like on sex tourism, sex trafficking, the guys that were going to Thailand and yes. stuff. It, it, you couldn't you couldn't prosecute somebody for committing a crime in another country. Right. And I think that was. That's maybe was his thought. I mean, that was the first thing I thought. I didn't know about Canada, but I was thinking Mexico. You cross the border, um, you know, I mean, you make it difficult for somebody to investigate. Well, and I think, too, that um, it was cheap. I mean, he would, you know, the money would go, they'd buy the property. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, we were not allowed. We got, so we get to Mexico. Hey, before you say we got to Mexico, let's talk about how you got approval for that. Because it's always interesting is you're you're now talking about as the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and with your other folks, you're talking about now taking a victim and a witness, an informant. You're now, you're not just talking about going to the next county. You're going, you're talking about going to another country. You know, what kind of process did you have to go through with that, with the uh, prosecutor, you know, with your, the, the boss and everybody to get permission to cross into another country? Uh, Customs was involved. We were working with Homeland, well, Homeland Security now, but Customs at the time. And um, uh, I think once they realized uh, how big this case was and what an impact it was have. Money was no expense. Now, traditionally, you know, you're right. You GBI works in the state of Georgia, and it was hard enough to get permission to go to Miami, Florida, like Steve was talking about, he and JP did. Um, so international was definitely a, a thing. But because of the fact that the sheriff was, you know, one, was wanted this guy taken down, um, once we found out that there was some fraudulent activity, that he was buying property overseas, taking the um, the kids there, um, it, it was, I guess, we just got the green light to go. And then um, it was me, Marty, and Ron go down there with the, with the informant, and he took us all the places that he knew the house. How long of a time was it? How long of a time was it from when you first met the informant till you ended up down in Mexico? How long did it take to get that going? A couple months, one month? Was it pretty quick? It was pretty quick? quick. They had already met him. So Marty and John had already knew him and I met him on the trip and heard his story. Super nice guy, uh, a victim. He was 100% a victim. Um, 
you know, one thing about child abuse and child molestation is there's such a secrecy shrouded. You know, your your abuser says to you, don't tell anybody. This is our secret because you're special. And I don't want anybody else to be jealous because I'm not spending the time with them that I'm spending with you. And so you as a victim begin to believe that, wow, I am special because this person has pointed, has chosen me to be spend time with, not realizing that he is playing a mind game with you and abusing you for his own satisfaction. And, and he's just a sick son of a gun. Well, you know, he's a psychiatric professional, too. So he knows how to manipulate their psyche. Yes. And then yes. utilizing uh, hypnosis. Wow. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, ama it's amazing. These yeah, no, he knows the vulnerability points. He knows he's basically he's 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 doing what they call now grooming, yes. but he's profiling these kids. And if they meet the profile, they they're now on his target list, his victim. Yeah. list. And and I don't know what all methods he employed. I say hypnosis because some of the, the tapes were just so horrendous. Yeah. Well, let's explain that for a little bit. Um, that that's going to come in later. That's going to be evidence later. But what you're saying is he taped a lot of this stuff, right? Was it just audio or was it audio and video? My recollection is that it was just audio. Um, but, you know, I think I likened it to a serial killer having trophies. I mean, he wanted it. He, he recorded it so he could go back and play it. So he could go back and relive it again. Relive it again. So, um, mm -mm -mm. but in Mexico, he would um, take him to a house there were a couple of houses that he would take them to. And um, uh, Petter had a prosthetic leg. And I remember Marty and I going into this house and seeing a shower where he had had it built just for him so that he could, uh, I don't know, prop his leg up or whatever. Um, and I think there was a chair or something. But, um, you know, the informant would uh, tell us, what happened where and there are a couple of places we weren't allowed to go um the owner of the house at the time was the protector of the house i don't know if she's protecting petter or whoever but she wouldn't um she wouldn't let us go in and so uh we would use the informant's memory and draw sketches and i remember marty drawing the sketch well, what about here what about here that we we later used um did you get any cooperation from the mexican authorities on this did they help out uh, with any search warrants or anything at all? Some. There was one time we go to a bank. I went in as a translator, me and Ron go in, and we, go, we had a search warrant for a deposit a bank, a deposit box, and um, and he had gotten there before us. It was pretty obvious that Petter knew what was going on, and so he had gotten there before us and either bribed him or whatever because um, they threatened to throw us in jail. And, and I, I remember us talking about it because, you know, I was – I was not an idiot, and I realized that bad stuff happened to people in foreign jails. Hey, players, this is the end of part one. Part two will come out Thursday, and this will be the final episode this year. We've got a lot of great stuff coming out in 2022, but part two and Sherry's story is going to be awesome. you got to stay tuned for that. 
Also, make sure you go check us out, gameofcrimespodcast.com, our website. We've got a lot of information there. A lot of pictures from Shuri's episode will be there. Also, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, and patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Man, we just had a great time doing our live stream review of the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. That's free. That's our Christmas gift for Murph and me to everybody. So you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, and see the free live stream that we made as a gift to everybody. And guess what, guys? Nothing says Christmas like Die Hard. So we hope you guys had a great Christmas. Stay tuned for our final episode of the year coming up. <laughs>